Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday. Perhaps the last edition of Felony Friday. If you've been uh, keeping up, if you listened to last week's episode where I talked about some changes coming on this show, um, there is going to be a name change. I'm crossing my fingers, hoping that everything lines up for everything that I need to do that is in line for next week. It's looking like it will, but things can slip. So you might get one more episode of Felony Friday before we uh, change things over. But uh, we are going to have a uh, a new show on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Uh, it's going to be called Finding Freedom. That's right. It's going to be called Finding Freedom. It's going to air on Thursdays on Lions of Liberty, not on the Friday show uh, that we have with Felony Friday. Uh, it's going to have, I mean, a lot of similarities between what you've come to love and uh, enjoy with this show, Felony Friday. It's going to maintain a very intent focus on the criminal justice system. I'm going to stay engaged and continue to focus on uh, and continue to give a platform to um, individuals who have been wronged by the criminal justice system and share their stories, how they've been able to traverse uh, the system, overcome obstacles, and find freedom. And also, uh, the biggest changes will be expanding. And I'll go into a lot more detail about this um, next week. I think next week could be the week after. I, I I would love to commit to it right now, but there's too many variables at play that I, you never know. When Finding Freedom does start, it's going to be more expansive, and we're going to be talking to individuals outside of the criminal justice system um, who have overcome obstacles and who have maybe sacrificed uh, some things. Maybe they've, uh, you know, learned some, had to learn some new skills, uh, got gotten themselves out of their comfort zone. But uh, the bottom line is these are individuals who have what it takes um, to find their freedom uh, within the system that we all um, are forced to play in. Are we all forced to uh, interact in? We're all forced to transact in today. So new podcast coming. Have another great episode of Felony Friday today. Another great guest. And not much is going to change, guys. It's going to be a new day, a new um, title to the podcast, which I'm very excited about. Very excited about the potential uh, outreach with that new title. And uh, it's it's going to be awesome. So let's get rolling with today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Amanda Saucier. Amanda was arrested in 2016 for wire fraud. Uh, we're definitely going to talk about the circumstances of this because this was a whistleblower case and she was the whistleblower and it's one of the largest government contractor frauds in U.S. history. And as a whistleblower, she ended up getting sentenced to 72 months in prison. She did 31 of those months and was just released here recently on October 28th. She's here to share her story. Amanda, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on the show and uh, thank you for sharing your story, sharing the injustice uh, that you've uh, suffered through here uh, with my audience uh, before we get to the, the, specific, the specifics of that, the specifics of this whistleblower case, I definitely want to talk about that. We'll probably spend a lot of the show um, talking about that aspect of your uh, of your story. But before we go down that road, just mm -hmm. to uh, set the stage uh, for my audience so they get to know a little bit more about you, um, if you could share what your life was like um, before this case, before your arrest. Okay. Um, well, I had an amazing life. <laughs> it was wonderful. I uh, was one of the few general contractors, I, I, a female general contractor. I actually uh, am a license holder for the National General Contractors Exam, which less than 30% of the people actually passed the first time, and that number is way lower for women. And I was really in a field of men 
so it was a great thing for me. I was like, wow, you know, I'm in this guy's world and I'm succeeding at it. Uh, lived in New York, had an electrical company there and uh, largest female union electrical contractor in Manhattan. Wonderful life, four beautiful children. You know, I had a house in South Carolina, a place in New York. I went back and forth. It was just a wonderful life. What ended up happening? How did you find yourself in a situation as a whistleblower um, <laughs> in this in the largest government contractor fraud in U.S. history? Okay, so uh, I was a federal contractor, and in order really to become a federal contractor, I went to work for a federal contractor, and you kind of have to springboard into the system, and and. Uh, so I was working with somebody, left there and went out on my own. And I was actually in a joint venture with this company, this individual. And um, I discover that he has what they call 8A status, which is socially and economically disadvantaged status. And in the course of this, I discovered that he is actually not the real deal. He is an African-American man that is sitting as the owner of this company, but he actually doesn't own it. There's a Caucasian man that's actually running everything. And we were in a joint venture together, and I send him an estimate for a job that we were going to bid. And he sends me back an email and says, well, you know, I have to have the, the guy uh, approve this. And I was thinking, why would you have to have him approve it? You're the owner we need to roll on this. And so then this individual sends me back an email and he starts dictating to me how we're going to bid this job. And I knew then I said, okay, we, we've got a problem. So, who, so who, in the who meantime, sent the, I, who sent the email back? It was the, the, the uh, actual, the, or so, so the, 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 the quasi owner or the, the one who was calling the shots. Yeah. Oh, the, the one who was calling the shots. Okay. So, at this point, I'm transitioning anyway out of federal contracting, and I'm starting to do work in New York City, which has a wonderful women's business enterprise program there. And so I'm transitioning up there, and I think, okay, I'm getting out of this. I'm out of this. I'm not, I don't want to be involved in this. So I move up to New York. Some time goes by, and I get a phone call from some employees and he had the details of what he had done to these employees and they ended up uh they knew that he was not the owner and so i did the right thing i i turned him in he, you know he was he was not doing right by his employees and he was not doing the right thing so i did what i thought was my patriotic duty and i turned him in because there are plenty of people who actually are minorities who are try struggling, trying to make companies work. And I myself as a woman know how hard it is. And here this guy is sitting just as a front with this guy maneuvering in the background. And the guy who was maneuvering in the background actually ended, it ended up that he owned like six companies and each one of these companies had somebody like a vet that was pretending to own the company, another African-American, you know, that kind of thing. It was a whole setup that he had going on. So you turned him in. What happens next? Mm -hmm. um, what did you expect to happen next? And then what actually happened? Um, well, what I expected to happen was I did what I should have done as a citizen and I move on with my life. And that is not what happened at all, at all. So the process is, is you file a, what they call a key TAM claim, which basically means you're turning this person in. And I get a call from the U.S. Attorney's Office, and this is through my civil attorney. You know, I had a civil attorney who helped me with stuff, and he was going to help me with this. And he gives me a call, and he tells me the U.S. Attorney's Office wants to talk to me. And that um, anything that I say in there, I have immunity for, they cannot touch me, you know, uh, I'm protected. And I said, okay, you know, 
I'm thinking, no problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they schedule the meeting. I go in there and the table is about a mile long. There's maybe 20 people in there from different agencies that these people have gotten money from. It turned out that they had gotten in excess of $360 million from the U.S. government fraudulently. Uh, I didn't realize it was that much, but it turned out that that's how much it was. And so I tell them, you know, we go through everything. I tell them everything and I leave and I go on with my life. And this is in, I believe it was late 2013 or early 2014. Then 2016, the beginning of 2016, I got a phone call from my attorney and he said, that the U.S. Attorney's Office wanted to talk to me again. Now, at this point, it's like a secret that is not a secret that this has happened because somehow or another, the U.S. Attorney's Office has notified the people that I turned in that they've been turned in. So I'm getting death threats. Wow. Right? I'm getting messages like, you know, we're because yeah, I guess at this point they see me as a snitch. And I I tell them, I said, I don't want to come in. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I want to just live my life. I've told you everything I know. I don't know what else you want from me. So July, and I'm thinking it was July 22nd. It was sometime in the middle of July of 2016. I wake up and I've got a text message from my attorney. And he says, holy you know, bad word, you just got indicted for wire fraud. And I'm thinking, wire fraud? What, what is wire fraud? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't even know what wire fraud was. And he, um, so, of course, I call him and I, you know, and he tells me and he sends me the indictment. And I read this indictment and it's insane. It's literally insane what they're saying in this indictment and I'm thinking okay this is this must be a mistake there's some sort of mistake going on here because whoever thinks that this is what actually happened they're they're just mistaken so I tell my attorney oh you know no problem I've got all the emails on this we can straighten this out well I was very naive with that too and um it just, it just didn't happen. I mean, I actually had emails that showed that I had not committed wire fraud. And they, the U.S. Attorney's Office, they didn't even want to see them. Brushed them right to the side. Didn't want to see them. So, they, so what were they, they put ba- all their what, focus on. What were they basing their okay. charge of wire fraud on against you? Okay. So whenever I had the joint venture we had uh, an invoice and my co-defendant, his, I'll just say his first name, Tom, my co-defendant, Tom, he calls me and he tells me that this joint venture is not going to be able to pay their uh, employees for the week. And he was a certified financial planner. I mean, he was an engineer. He was an accountant. I completely relied on him to handle the portion of this joint venture. And I said, okay. And he's, and he tells me we need to get some financing, which in construction is very hard to do. And especially in a joint venture. And he said, why don't you call up this funding company in New York that the actual Boykin, and I I guess I can use these names, Boykin had actually gotten approval for factoring invoices with this same funding company Mm. when I was employed with Boykin. And I was the contact with the financing company through Boykin. So now that we have this joint venture, I said, okay, well, I've left Boykin. I'm now with this joint venture. So I said, okay, well, you know, I'll call them up and see if we can get some short-term financing. So I called them up. And they said, you know, I submitted the applications and all that. And they come back to me in writing and they said, okay, 
this looks like what they call a contra account. This looks like a contra account because the joint venture is named Boykin Action. And you're actually getting your money and your contracts from a company named Boykin. And I said, yeah, that's because they own, they do own half of the company. This is the representative of that company that owns half of this company. And so they tell me, they said, okay, well, you've got to drop that name. So who owns this joint venture? And I said, well, half of it is the guy who owns Boykin, that's the representative of Boykin Contracting. And half of it is me who owns Action Contractors. And he says, okay, well, just drop the Boykin, send me back everything with just Action. Since the company is on 50-50, you can do that. That's legal. And we'll approve it under action. I said, okay. You know, so ironically, I was on the phone with my attorney on something else that same day. And I ran it by him. And he said, yeah, you can do that. You own, you know, half of it. You can do that. I said, okay. And I was the managing member of the L- of the LLC, the joint venture. Mm-hmm. So I sent, I sent it up to them. Now, Again, these are the same people that I dealt with whenever I was over at Boykin and they were getting financing. So I send it up to him. They approve it. They approve the invoices and they pay the invoices. And we all went on our merry way. And then I guess it was three and a half years later, I get indicted for wire fraud for that. On that transaction. So I thought, yeah, on that transaction. And I'm thinking to myself, well, there's no intent to defraud. Wire fraud has an element that you have to intend to defraud basically the lender. So if the lender knew and was the one who instructed us to do this, then we shouldn't. This this is just a mistake, mm-hmm. you know, in the fact that they didn't have all the information that they actually needed. And they presumed something that was actually not true. So. I quickly learned that they they didn't want to hear that at all. They absolutely did not want to believe that it was a legitimate transaction. And in the long run, I was still naive and didn't realize that it wasn't about that at all. It was about, I've seen this now time and time again, when you there is no protection for whistleblowers. And when you blow the whistle, for whatever reason, their mentality is they come after you. So at what point did you realize, well, I guess you realized they were coming after you when you got this indictment filed. So now we know, you know what that oh, was a reference to. And, what no, what happened next after, after you get that call from your lawyer? No, I'm thinking, right, I'm still thinking, oh, okay, you know, I'll get these emails and get all this paperwork and we'll straighten all this out. And, you know, I'll get the, I mean, they were, they were actually saying that I had an, I had incorporated a company just for the sole purpose of factoring these invoices. And I'm thinking, this is crazy because I actually incorporated what was a sole proprietorship because I was advised to, because I was venturing out and getting my own government contracts. That's why the sole proprietorship had been incorporated. It had nothing to do with factoring these invoices. And I had paid taxes as a sole proprietor on this company for years. So I had contracts and everything. So I'm thinking, okay, this is a simple mistake. So I gather all of that up. My attorney and I go in to talk to the U.S. attorney and we've got all this paperwork. And I'm like, see, this is a mistake. You, this company was being incorporated because of the path of getting my own government contracts. There were taxes paid on this company for years as a sole proprietorship. It was not just invented out of nowhere for the purpose of factoring an invoice. This is insanity. I mean, we're getting $35 million worth of contracts and you think I'm going to do something on a $900,000 $900,000 deal. I mean, this is crazy. And he told me, he said, I don't even care about that. I don't, I don't even care about that. He, he just was completely adamant 
that I had um, stolen money. And this he is, knew. This is a federal agent? You, you, say, you say they didn't care? Who, oh, who's, it was the paying? U.S. Attorney's Office. U.S. Attorney, okay. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Attorney's Office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He knew I hadn't. I mean, they even came in court and said that the numbers were changed on the invoices, I guess, to inflate the invoice. I said, that absolutely is not true at all. Anybody who does any kind of factoring knows that the factoring company then contacts the who they're getting their money from, and they verify the dollar amounts. This is insanity. Uh, it was it was like living in some insanity vortex. What's the reason why you think they came after you? Because you know you had the, the initial thing where you you blew the whistle. And then they called you back again and you said you you didn't want, you know, you said your piece, everything you knew. Do you think mm-hmm. that's why they, they, they pushed and came after you because you didn't talk with them more or what, what, what do you think happened there? I, th- I, I'm not sure. I really don't. I, I think that there was some personal, um, there was an investigator who I think got personally involved in it. Like she let her feelings um, get involved in it. And there was also a female co-defendant I had who had a personal vendetta against me. And, uh, when I read the indictment, it was what this female co-defendant had told me before. So I believe it was actually her misinformation that she had given to them and they just ran with it instead of verifying it. Or even calling me, call me and ask me. I'll tell you over the phone. I mean, if you would have asked me if that was the case, I could have proven to you that it wasn't. And it just blew up. It just completely blew up. And I think it had a lot to do with money, uh, ketam money. And I, I, but I really don't think, in looking at it in hindsight, I think it was more the investigator. With the, with the Department of Agriculture who was assigned to investigate this whole thing, I think it was more her than it was the U.S. Attorney. I think she had some, she had allowed some personal feelings to get in there and she just made me a target for whatever reason. I don't, so you, I don't think I will ever understand it. So you said this was the largest government contractor fraud in U.S. history. Can you give us an idea of of the scope, how many people were, were, were you indicted, you know, w- with a group of people or, or how was, how was that done? Mm-hmm. I was indicted with a group of people. I was next to the last um, name on the indictment. People have told me since then that indicates your priority in the whole thing. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think it was one, two, um, maybe seven or eight of us that were indicted and there were superseding indictments after that for other people. Um, it was, they had gotten over $360 million from the U S government fraudulently in Mm -hmm. fraudulent contracts. Mm -hmm. And I was not a part of that, that part of it. They, uh, was not involved in that part at all. That was the part that you blew Uh, the whistle on, right? Yes. That was the part that I blew the whistle on. And, and when you blow the whistle, you think, okay, I've got protection. And my attorney even told me anything that you go in there and you talk about, you're, you have immunity for. And I sat in there and talked about these invoices and us factoring the money and all of this stuff. But that was a lie because they actually, when I was, uh, when I pled guilty, I stood up there and said, I didn't do this. Not like this. This is not what happened. And uh, they even said then, they said she had no immunity, which was not what I was told. And I, my advice to people, if you are going to blow the whistle, is to make sure that you have everything in writing. But the book Lucifer's Banker by Bradley Birkenfeld is almost identical to my story, almost identical, where he blew the whistle on United Bank of Switzerland, and he was the one that ended up in jail. My co-defendants who stole the $360 million, they got probation. Wow. So did, yeah. did, they they took a plea, I assume. Did, did you take a plea? Were you offered a plea? Yes. 
Yes, I took a plea. So that was your plea for the the 72 months. Yeah, I was supposed to. I was told I was not going to get uh, prison time. I would get probation because under the um, intended and actual laws, the the factoring invoices had been paid back. And so I would not be charged with that full amount. That absolutely was not true. Whenever we got in there, the judge said, no, you know, we're charging you with the full, uh, all the invoices that were factored, not on how much money you actually got. And it was just a nightmare. It was a complete and total nightmare. And like I said, the U.S. attorney stood up and said, oh, you know, they were changing the dollar figures on these invoices. And that just wasn't true. And I believe that he was told that. I don't believe that he actually sat down. I believe he was operating on what he was being fed. So they didn't have any evidence for that. I mean, were they, they were just stating it and it was. No. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were just stating it. They never entered any kind of evidence to show that at all, at all. Wow. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, during the time between the time I pled guilty and the time that I started serving my sentence, they, um, the investigator with the federal investigator actually started calling all of my clients in New York and telling them that I was going to jail for 20 years. What would be the reason for that? Why would they be doing that? You tell You tell me. She uh, she contacted my board of directors who, who knew. Obviously, my board of directors knew exactly what was going on. They knew I had been indicted. They knew everything. They knew I had pleaded guilty. She contacts them and asks them if they have any, quote unquote, bad acts to report about me. She calls all my customers and tells them the same thing. Tells them I'm going to jail for 20 years. And do they have any bad acts to report about me? So as you can imagine, the first thing that my customers do is drop me like a hot potato. Mm -hmm. Ruined my life. Ruined my life. Took me away from my children. I mean, it was crazy. You mentioned before that you originally, you thought you would just get probation from this. Mm-hmm. So when you found out that you were sentenced by, my attorney. by your attorney, yeah. So so when you found out that you were sentenced to seventy two mm-hmm. months, well, I mean, what was what was your reaction? What was your your state of mind at that point? I couldn't I couldn't believe it. Well, my attorney had actually died of a of a sudden heart attack, mm-hmm. and so I had to get another attorney, and and so I had this new attorney who was just terrible. And um, I, I just couldn't believe it. it. It was almost like it wasn't true. I was standing up there going, what? Like, this is impossible. Like, h- how in the world would I get this kind of time? And I mean, if it wasn't for me, they would have never even known about this case. These people would have continued to take contracts from legitimate people who deserved the contracts. This would have gone on and on and on. And I just couldn't believe it. I absolutely could not believe it. Hey, everybody, taking a quick break here from the show. Wanted to remind you all to check out uh, my man, Tyler Colford, a.k.a. Crypto Man, and his new song, Free Ross. If you didn't hear my recent interview with Lynn Ulbricht, that was episode, Felony Friday, episode 230. Interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, played Tyler's song, uh, Free Ross. It's fantastic, phenomenal. Not just for uh, the message of freeing Ross Ulbricht, but overall for changing the broken criminal justice system. All the proceeds from uh, the Free Ross song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man. You can find it on Spotify and Amazon, Amazon Music. 100% of the proceeds from the song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man, go towards Freeing Ross Ulbricht. So please check it out. These are perilous times when they ruin your lives over victimless crimes and they sever your ties from your business loved ones and family wide. New slave play, but they barely pay you. Don't care about work ethic or major. I mean, 
this this is hard to hard to process listening to it. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind for me, I mean, people will hear this and say, "Well, why are they punishing a whistleblower?" Well, it sounds mm-hmm. like they don't want whistleblowers, and maybe you were you were getting at something even bigger than uh, than this. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's just the first the first thing that you know, sort of the speculation that comes into my mind is are, are is something even bigger than this being hidden? And maybe you were kind of uh, nipping at the heels of it by exposing this one case of it. Well, I think so too. Looking back on it, I was just so naive at the time. Um, and I was so focused on my own business and getting my business, uh, you know, growing my business, getting it up to New York, getting everything going, my children, my home life. I was just so focused on all that. To me, this was just a kind of a, an annoyance is what it was. It never, it never occurred to me that it was as serious as it was. And, um, Cause I kept thinking this is, I naively kept thinking this is going to get straightened out. This is crazy. And, um, I think I was, I think there was something to this day that I still don't understand and don't know about. Um, it was just insanity. That's the only thing I, I keep using that term because it was almost like living in a vortex of insanity and there are no laws to protect whistleblowers. The laws that are in place are to protect government employees who blow the whistle. But those aren't the majority of people who blow the whistle. The majority of people who blow the whistle are the on the outside, like the person who blew the whistle on Bernie Madoff. He was he was on the outside. He was a specialist and could see the numbers that the numbers were impossible and he knew it had to be a Ponzi scheme. So it's people like me and like him and like Bradley Birkenfeld who are blowing the whistle. They're not government employees. So the laws have to change. They have to change to actually protect anybody who comes in to blow the whistle. If you're coming in to blow the whistle, you need to be protected because mm-hmm. that's otherwise what's going to happen is, and it's, this knowledge is going to get out that you're going to be the one who's targeted and then you're, nobody's going to do it. Nobody wants to stick their neck out and end up in jail. So, I mean, I I understand that Bradley Birkenfeld was so disgusted by the whole thing. He has left the United States and will never return. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I heard. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think your case or your view, I should say, you know, going into your case, you know, thinking that the justice system would, would work itself out. This can't actually, you know, turn out where I would end up going to prison um, for blowing the whistle. I think the vast majority of people think that we have a functioning justice system that actually wants to get to the root and get the truth out. Fact of the matter is, um, you know, if you're indicted in a federal indictment, it's out of your control. There's almost nothing you can do, even if you are entirely innocent. If they, I mean, if they want you in prison, if they want to convict you, they got you. If they want to plea, that's your only way. I mean, that's your only way of reducing the impact of it. And it doesn't matter if there's evidence. A lot of people think, well, there's got to, they got to have, have evidence that shows me it, it doesn't matter. It really does not matter. They don't have to have any evidence, and they can put almost anybody, or they can put anybody in prison. So I, I wanted to come back and talk about, uh, you know, you were sentenced to seventy-two months in prison. You did thirty-one months. Can you talk about mm-hmm. that experience, what that was like? Oh, my gosh. It's, it changed my life. It actually changed my life and, in, in more ways than just what somebody would think it would. Um, I used to say I lived in a pink cloud before it happened because I actually started off my time in county. I was, re- I was remanded to county. So... Um, So I'm remanded to county and the girls that were in there, people used to come up to me and go, what in the world are you doing here? You don't look like you belong here. And the the pain, the pain that you witness in the system is just so sad. 
it, it changed. If, if you go and do this and it does not change your life, then something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with you. The, I saw so many people who did not deserve to be in prison, who are in prison. There are girls right now down at Coleman that do not deserve the sentences that they have. They deserve to be at home. You, you can't tell me that you can be at a camp, a federal camp, and you can't be home on an ankle monitor. I, I don't think the public understands what a camp really is and the freedoms that the girls have there. And to me, it's just legalized slavery is what it is. They have them there to run the camp, to run the whole prison there, to do all the cleaning, the janitor work, the trash, cutting the grass, doing everything. Those women do everything down there. And they have to keep those numbers. They have to keep the numbers up to actually keep the prison running. Because God forbid they actually have to cut their own grass. Or And Unicor, people don't understand how big Unicor is and what Unicor really is. Those girls are down there earning 46 cents an hour working in a warehouse in the middle of a field in Florida in the heat. They, before I left the summer, this past summer, one of the girls um, had a heat stroke. She fell out with a heat stroke and they told her to go back to the unit. Medical would not see her. She goes back to the unit. It's clear to me and I am nowhere in a medical field that this person has had a heat stroke. So she, I, I told them, I said, well, I'll go over to work to where her work is and get her belongings because they were still there. And I'm going to tell you when I walked into that warehouse the heat hit me. It's it's over 100 degrees in there. And those women are working in there every day with long pants, thick, heavy, long pants, steel-toed boots. It is, it's insane. And I understand that people say, okay, you need to be punished, but that's not punishment. That's, mm-hmm. that's beyond punishment. You're putting somebody's life on the line. And... Meanwhile, the officers are sitting in these offices that are so cold with air conditioning that they're having to wear jackets in the summer sitting in there. But you can't get air conditioning or even a ventilation system for these women. And it was like that in everyone, everyone that I was in. Yeah, that's, uh, I think you, you said it correctly, that it's it's legalized slavery. That's exactly what it is. I mean, you're getting paid would you say 46 cents an hour? That's, uh, that's not a mm-hmm. wage. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. So, so well, what type a, of, that's a top wage. That's a top wage because if you don't work at Unicor, you make like 20 cents an hour. So what, what does Unicor manufacture? They are the Unicor. There manufactures the cubicles. Like when you go in the social security office and you mm-hmm. see the cubicles back there, those those came from Unicor, and they are made by the women there. Wow. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. So you you served uh, 31 months, but so that was just mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, for, for serving and good behavior, you got out in 31 months, or was there some other reason you got out? Um, no, I was released on the COVID home confinement program. Okay. Uh, I actually am in the middle of trying to get a compassionate release because during my time there, due to the lack of care that I received at Coleman, I am now legally blind. So I have a lot of restrictions and I actually need surgery that I'm still fighting uh, being on home confinement to get the surgery that I need. Wow. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. occurred. This occurred while you were in prison. Mm-hmm. The, the, mm-hmm. the issue with, with, yeah, with the I, blindness. I, well, whenever I went in, I was diagnosed with glaucoma, which I did not know that I had. And at that point, it was a mild glaucoma. So they put me on medication, 
and ordered that I be sent out to a specialist, which the BOP did not do. They did not give me the drops. They did not take me out to the specialist. The, um, I went to a specialist one time, and he said I had to come back every 30 days. They did not take me back. And I went one other time, and that was uh, because my judge had called down there. And Coleman, of course, then made an appointment. And this was maybe three weeks before I left to come home. I knew I had been approved to come home. So they took me out then. And from the time that I was diagnosed, I had at that point lost less than 20% of my peripheral vision. And by the time I came home, I have lost 95% of my peripheral vision. Wow. Due to a lack of care in the BOP, I am now legally blind. And, and of course, you can't you can't sue the BOP. I mean, it's, it's, there's just it's it's just terrible. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear mm-hmm. that. I'm sorry to hear that you've had to go through that. Um, so, w- with your with your home confinement, w- what are you limited to? W- what are you allowed to do? I mean, I assume you have to wear an ankle monitor. Mm-hmm. I'm on an ankle monitor right now, and. Uh, I would say that it's they make you work and get a job, but yet they make it very difficult for you to be able to get a job. I've actually gotten three job offers, and each time they have called the employer and basically said, no, you can't have this job. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, now you're telling me I have to get a job, but you're telling me I can't work here. What? So recently they said, well, we've got some employers that we want you to work, that we that we send employees to. And I went, oh, okay, okay. I I know what the situation is now. So but then I told them, I told the the person, I said, well, you know, since y'all go by the BOP's standards and their program statements and stuff, then you probably want my restrictions because I'm legally blind. And she said, what? You're legally blind? I'm like, yes. I said, I have a whole list of restrictions that I cannot do because of my eyesight. So, and I really appreciated her helping me to get a job. And I gave her the restrictions and I haven't heard back. Hmm. So I guess they're now not interested in helping me get a job. (laughs) So what happened? You said they want you it's, to get a job. What happens if you can't find a job that they approve of? Well, they haven't. Okay, I've heard other people say that whenever they they were told they had to get a job or they would be violated and sent back, they have not said that to me. I have not been told that. So it may be because of my um, handicap, they are not enforcing that rule with me. But I, as of today, I have not been told that, but I have heard from Mm -hmm. other women that, that have been released that yes, they do make get a job. Hmm. Yeah. They just haven't told me that I had to get a job. It might be that, you know, that, that um, as of today's date, they haven't, I've heard that from other people, but they have not told me that. Yeah. So over this whole ordeal, the past, uh, you know, really, really four years. I guess it goes back to even before that when you were the whistleblower that started this whole process. Um, what, what's been your biggest lesson learned from this this whole experience? <laughs> Other than to keep your mouth shut, <laughs> um, I think the don't be naive. You know, even doing this, even doing this podcast that. There, you know, I sit and think, okay, are they going to give me a hard time about this? If somebody, you know, if they hear this, are they going to try to try to retaliate against me? That's and and that's a sad way to have to live. That your government and the people who are supposed to be protecting you and helping you are actually coming after you and trying to ruin your life. And uh, it's like my children. I mean. When I was when I was put in prison, I had four children at home. Four children. Well, one had just left for college. 
I had a daughter that is has Asperger's who's autistic. I have a son that has a congenital heart defect, and I'm paying taxes, and 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 I'm I'm not doing what these people are saying I'm doing. So why are you trying to put me in prison? It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Uh, no, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. It makes no sense. And I've heard so many stories like this. So many stories. Yeah, like like we talked about at the beginning. You know, we don't have a justice system. We have a uh, an unjust system. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know how to fix it. I mean, this is a small way that I try to you know try to do a small part by just you know, giving people like yourself, Amanda, a, uh, a platform to share what's happened to you. Because like I said before, the majority of Americans out there don't think stuff like this happens. They think that everybody who goes to prison, well, they did something horribly wrong and they, you know, deserve to be in prison. Like the conditions you were talking about before, a lot of people defend those conditions because they say, oh, this person did something horrible. They should have thought about that before they did that. And now they're in these horrible conditions. I was one of those people. I was one of those people. If I saw that somebody went to jail, I said, oh, well, they must have done something. They must have done something. They might have not done that, but they must have done something to brought this to bring this on them until it happened to me. And so I tell people now when they judge people like that, I say, okay, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You are either going to end up in the same situation or somebody that you love or care about is going to end up in the same situation because it is just so far reaching. I mean, and I remember my attorney telling me whenever I said, I said, I didn't do this. So we need to go to trial because I didn't do this. And I had the emails in the papers to prove it. And he said, you really don't get this, do you? He said, this isn't about whether you did it or you didn't. He, and I had known my attorney for years. He said, Amanda, I know you. I know what kind of person you are, that you're kind hearted, that, you know, you you do things for people and like you've bought cars for people who I went and bought a car for a lady who didn't have any air conditioning, who worked for me because she was hot and I didn't want to see her driving with no air conditioning. And he's, I know that's the person that you are. He said, but they, you are going to sit in that room and you are going to be in your nice suits with, you know, your hair and your jewelry. He said, and these people who are in the jury box, they work, they work at Walmart. He said, I know these transactions are legal, but I can't even keep up with what y'all are doing. These people are going to get completely lost. And the only thing they're going to see is look at this B, B-I-T-C-H, mm-hmm. from New York sitting here with her little suit on. He said, and they are going to convict you. It doesn't matter if you did it. It's the fact that you're making more money than they are. And they don't like that. So they're going to convict you. So you might as well go ahead and take the guilty plea and just get it over with. He said, you'll get probation and you can just move on with your life. And I told him, I said, I'll lose my license. I'll lose my contractor's license. I'll lose my glass and glazing license. He said, it doesn't matter. You don't have a choice. It's not about the truth. Yeah. Well, I he think was he, right. He summed it up right there. And he and he's a lawyer. I mean, it's. Yeah. He was my lawyer. He's the one that, that died. He was my lawyer. Oh man, what a uh, what a world we live in. Well, well, Amanda, I'd like to give my guests uh, before before they go a chance to uh, you know either plug anything. I don't know if you have anything you you want to plug, or just to give um, you know some advice, maybe some advice to to families out there who have a, a loved one who's in prison, or or anything anything like that. Well, I think that there needs to be an awareness of clemencies and pardons. And that there are so many people, we have got to stop this. That John Grisham uh, pushed for a law to be passed in New York for prosecutorial misconduct, where there is, there is not a protection for prosecutorial misconduct. If you put someone on the stand that you know is lying, you, you're going to be in trouble. And that law actually passed. I know the American Bar Association is fighting it right now, which is 
to me an example of what's really wrong in this country, but that law is in place. That law needs to be put on the federal books. It needs to be a federal law where you are not allowed to lie about defendants, nor are you allowed to put up false testimony about them. And, you know, the last thing is a good friend of mine has a health supplement that he is doing that is absolutely amazing named Panache Du Jour. Wonderful. It's like happiness in a pill. So check him out. Sounds good, Amanda. Well, thank you for being so generous with your time and for sharing your story with the Felony Friday audience. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode of Felony Friday, another awesome episode. Just want to remind everyone, before you get going here, after your next uh, next podcast and your shuffle or whatever it is you're doing with your, uh, your day today, I want to thank you for giving me your time and uh, listening to this interview. I want to ask you, please to share this with a friend. The only way that we're going to expand this message that we're going to reform this criminal justice system is by sharing interviews just like this with your network. Very easy to do. And I also want to ask you to please, if you have not yet checked it out, you need to go to the Lions of Liberty store. It's lionsofliberty.store. We have a bunch of new T-shirt designs, really interesting stuff, really eye-catching designs. Uh, Of course, our taxation is death shirt has been a hit. It's selling like crazy. We now have the uh, the tax on wax off shirt, just awesome. And and there's more coming. We're really trying to get into uh, what we're calling it the Lions of Liberty brand of shirts. So you're going to get the cool design on the front and then up just real small up by the tag on the back. You're going to have our Are You Ready to Roar logo. Uh, we're trying to, you know, take another angle here and influence people through, uh, you know, some snazzy T-shirts. So check it out, lionsofliberty.store. And remember, if you're in the Lions of Liberty pride, you get 20% off. So for as little as 5 bucks a month, you're going to get 20% off all your T-shirt orders. So to join the pride, go to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty and... With that being said, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Have a great weekend or week or whenever you're listening to this. Just have an awesome day. I'll talk to you next week. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fire is a liberty burning.